Okay, hello and welcome to episode 53 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Today's guest is someone I've known for a very, very long time. Like many guests on this show, we go back decades. He is one of the most prolific drummers ever to come out of underground music. Uh, most notably for me, because it's how we met and the band that I think of most often when I think of him, he was a member of Youth of Today. He's also in Rival Schools, Civ. He was in so many cornerstone New York hardcore bands, there's really no point in doing an inventory. This year, he has done time uh, filling in the rather large shoes of Troy Mowat, stepping in after 40 years for seven seconds. He also has a very deep background in marketing, and I was hoping to get into a discussion with him about sort of the curious cross-section between art and commerce. In any case, I have, I think we have a great shot at a very entertaining conversation. So Sammy Siegler, thank you for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I love it. This is great. Cool. You know what's cool is that you, I trust you. You're smart, and I trust that you probably got the right pronunciation of Troy's last name. You said Mowat. And just because you said it, I think that's right. And I think I've been saying it wrong this whole time. I say Moat, but maybe you're right. <laughs> Dano says so. I think so. I back that. <laughs> All right. You say um, Sade or do you say uh, Sade? You know, comes up about once every 20 years in conversation. I'm going to go with Sade. I still go, yeah. I think uh, you, I just, I'm saying I trust you. I think you probably, at the end of the day, if I disagree, you still probably have it right. My mother was an English professor. Let's let, let's lay it, let's lay it at those feet. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I met 34 years ago by my math. I believe we met in 88. Okay. That okay. that would put me probably 20 years old, you somewhere in the neighborhood of at least walking distance from about 14. That back then seemed like a chasm, like a, like an absolute grand canyon of an age difference. You know, I, I felt mm -hmm. like youth of today was doing daddy dake. You know, now it's like an irrelevant difference. But I'm curious, was that age difference something you were conscious of? In dealing with those guys? We should have like a little ticker that kind of comes up every time you say a word that I don't know, that I want to know. Chasm <laughs> is the first one. Ding. Chasm. Big. Great ga word. Big I'm, gaping I'm, space. I'm going to use it. I love it. Okay. okay. I'm going to say 87 just because here's my memory and I could be wrong. I think I joined Youth of Today in 87 and the first show I played was in Pennsylvania and I had a fever and that was where the photo of the back of the Went on Salone cover was taken. And I feel like right after that, the second show was Fenders with um, Seven Seconds Uniform Choice, Justice League. And I want to say that was 87. Did you stay possible? at my house? Did you stay at my house or had or had Basecamp kind of moved to Sloth Crew by then? I want to say that that was the first thing. We probably stayed with you. And then summer of 88 was the real lengthy stay, which I've got awesome video footage of, by the way. I've got like okay. just really good stuff, like uh, Walter shaving Luke's head in your bathroom. <laughs> okay. Luke, oh, or, um, or Luke dying his sorry, not shaving his head, dying his hair. And he's got like tinfoil on his head because I don't know why that heats it up or something and makes it better. Purcell writing the song New York Crew on bass, like at your house. Um, okay. Just like cool footage one of these days for the next podcast. We'll, we'll you bringing up Luke brings up a memory that is both a horror, but also kind of a laugh. Uh -huh. Luke was at the condo one day and I don't think he knew any of us were home and he was doing his laundry. Right. Okay. And I come in and I go straight out to the backyard for God knows what. And I turn my head and Luke is standing buck naked, folding his laundry in the laundry room. It's oh my a, God. It's a sight I can't unsee. And he jumped about 10 feet. He's got great stories. He definitely should be a guest. I mean, just one Luke story that came up the other day that I forgot about was on that same tour in 88. We were in like Toronto or somewhere in Canada and the van was broken down and we were all just stuck. We waited for these mechanics to fix it. And we were hanging at this donut shop and Luke 
no joke, went across the street to this mattress store and got into one of the beds and fell asleep. And he was in the window, in the window display, in the mattress. And he said he woke up and he was surrounded by like six employees. And he just got out and just ran. But uh, he's got stories for days. Do you remember this? uh, I want to say it was 97 when we did this reunion 87 trip to Vegas. Were you part of that? Yeah, yeah. Friendship. Friendship. We had a name for it. Friendship 98. Some Nelson-ism. Nelson, yeah. Yeah. But I want to say Luke was there. Yeah. And he looked like this grown-ass man with, you know, male pattern baldness. And an yeah. adult bearing, and I just could not reconcile it. I, you know, I knew him as a cartoon character in the eighties. Well, I guess to bring it back to your question, like that's the age difference, and maybe the time drift, the chasm. That's the ca- yeah. we're back to the chasm now. There you, you know? go. And um, so yeah, yeah rela- you know, relatability between you and them at that age. Yeah, like when you don't, and also you don't see people for a while. But um, you know, it's interesting looking back for sure. Like, I mean, I'm still friends with all of you guys, thank God, and it's awesome. But like, yes, back then. I mean, if I'm 14 and say our singer Ray Capo was like what six years older than me or something, so he's like, a year, I think he's a year older than I am, but I'm not positive. But just that's a big deal. And so the stuff that they're going through and that I'm going through is different. And looking back, like I see it now, but at the time, it just we were all, it, you know, it worked. But um, but for sure, they were big brothers. I was little brothers. Like, you know, I mean, we would like fight in like a brotherly kind of way, or I would get my ass kicked basically by them, by Ray really. Okay. And Alex Brown. But, uh, you know, but Purcell and I were really tight. He was like my big brother. And like, we had that kind of bond and, you know, I think it all just, it, it, you know, looking back, like it was kind of this, as you know, like this melting pot of just all these different characters and everybody added different color, like Luke standing naked at your mom's place doing laundry. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, here's this. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. I brought that up. But yeah, we, um, we reenacted also in the video, we reenacted the beginning of like, or the walking scene from suburbia right okay. by your pool Got that on video, like we're walking in slow motion, like, and singing that song, done it, done it, right. done it. Um, yeah, just cool shit. And like Ernst was there and Zach and just, you know, you had, I think it's important in any like growing up or crew lifestyle thing, just to have a clubhouse. And you know, that was that summer for me was that was the clubhouse that was that was base camp that was it that's where we were hanging sloth mm-hmm. crew dudes would go out and, and do whatever they were doing they'd come back and have their tails and mm-hmm. of shit that they stole or whatever the hell they did but yeah that was base camp um you are a third generation drummer yes father and grandfather yes could you give me some detail on that because obviously i don't think any of them were an agnostic front or playing in cfa it's it's yeah. different worlds I mean, the family business was just moving in storage business, which is like this warehouse in Greenwich Village that my great grandfather bought in like uh, 18, like late 1800s or something. It was an old like horse stable. And that was kind of the family business. But they also, my grandfather played drums, Murray, Murray Siegler. And he was in a band called the Kingsmen. And I really don't know much about like his kind of gigging. I think it was just like big band type stuff. I mean, nothing professional because he had that family business that kind of held him, held him down or, or you know, provided or whatever. But he played and he was good. Um, and then my dad, you know, played and and he was also good. And he kind of was like gigging. He grew up in New York City, but also in Long Island. And was just planning like weddings and bar mitzvahs and like summer things at hotels. Like he would tell me like he was like the 
the band at the hotel where like, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. performed and he'd have to like back Sammy Davis Jr. or, you know, just cool shit, but in his own very different than the the hardcore lane that I came up in. But he, my dad later got into like Brazilian music and he has a samba school and like he's, I connected him with the Beastie Boys and needed a Brazilian drummer for something. And he's actually on that Hello Nasty record on one of the cuts. And, um, and he still plays, he's 81. He's a really sick drummer. And, you know, the growing up, it wasn't, you know, my dad kind of credits me with getting him back into drums because he said when we were born, he was just so stressed and hectic. His drums were packed up. And I was like, dad, what are those things in the corner? Like, what are those big cases? I want to check those out. And so he set the drums up and I'd start like getting into it. And I remember my grandfather teaching me just like a double stroke roll of like mama, papa, mama, left, like left, left, right, right, left, left, and getting into that. And, and that was like, yeah, that just was nice to have, um, that exposure. And, uh, I don't know if it was in my blood or if it was just like kickstarted me, but fortunately, you know, my older sister turned me onto music and I kind of discovered like Kiss and I was excited about the explosives and then I wanted to be in a band and then it just kind of steamrolled. And, but I also had like an uncle Jack who was a drummer and now my cousin, my cousin's been playing drums for a long time. So there's, you know, there's music in the family, third generation. Yeah. There is, there's a curiosity on my part because you think about the sort of the school of drumming they came up in and the type of style they played in. And then they see where you landed, which is in some of the most chaotic and forceful drumming there is, which is hardcore. Was there an acceptance of that and an understanding of what you're doing? Or was there kind of a what the hell reaction? I think it came with the, um, they were supportive, basically, is a short answer. Like they would take me to CBs when I was too young. I, I played there, I think, with Gorilla Biscuits first, like in 85 or something. And I couldn't play the show. I was too young. So they took me there or they took me to the old Ritz on 11th street to, or my older sister did, or my mom did, or my dad did. And, and, you know, my dad would get us tickets and he took me to my first concert with Sha Na Na. And he took my sister and I to see the stray cats at old Roseland. And, you know, I was, um, talking to someone last night about this, but like, yeah, I was just going to concerts. I saw the BCs open for Madonna and I would go to the back of the village voice and buy these tickets. And I was too young to go. So yeah, my parents would take me. There was actually like one night we were at the, I wanted to go see this like uh, Swatch Watch skateboard thing they did at the Beacon Theater with, um, I forgot what band played, man, like maybe like Per Ubu or someone really weird, but like Christian Asoy was there and all these skaters. Anyway, my dad took my friend and I up there around the back because like, I don't know if it was sold out or something, but he basically gave these two dudes like some money. And they opened up the back door and my friend and my, he just like let my friend and I go. And we went with these two bigger dudes and um they walked us up the back stairwell and we popped out of the bathroom of the beacon and we got in and so it's like you know pre-cell phones just like all right i'll meet you out front at you know 10 o'clock right. or whenever out so they were supportive and you know and it's also that that warehouse that i mentioned the moving and storage thing like that was really magical because you know my parents got divorced my dad ended up kind of moving into this warehouse and carving out like a little area of it as his apartment and he had his drum set and so then i was able to go there and play and then now I'm starting to play in bands and we need a place to rehearse so we could rehearse there. And like the first time I, I jammed with Gorilla Biscuits in 85, they came to my dad's warehouse. And then, you know, Youth of Today ended up writing We're Not Alone at that warehouse. And that photo on the back of Disengage was at that warehouse. And then Judge wrote Bringing It Down at that warehouse. So it was like, and even before that, my very first band was called Noise Police that my sister got me into with these two guys that later went on to be in the ska band called the Skadanks, who were big in New York. and. But we used to rehearse there and I was like 11 and they would give me weed and I get stoned and we jam, but <laughs> New York shit. There you go. Yeah. 
Did your dad have a pronounced opinion or a strong opinion of what makes a good drummer and what constitutes the opposite? He was, uh, he kind of takes shots at my music a little bit when we'd be in like long car rides. I'd be like, Dad, I want to play like, you know, hardcore for you. And he was just, you know, I remember one time he was like, you know what I love about this music is like, songs are really short. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> a way of saying like enough of this shit. But no, I mean, what I liked about really, I think one of the takeaways is that he exposed me to other music. So he was constantly talking about like the clave beat with like, which is like the root of a lot of Latin music. Mm-hmm. And you know, with basic understanding, understandings of jazz. And, uh, and so I, and one of my favorite drummers was Stuart Copeland. So it's that kind of thing of like being, you know, well-rounded and then approaching your music. So if I'm approach, if I, I approach kind of hardcore, you know, or I was, and I, I do now with this, you know, fortunately I have this other background, this, you know, kind of exposure to these other styles of music, which I think kind of helped shape me as a drummer. Do so I have- credit him. Do you have your own kind of specific opinions or just, you know, light bulbs that go off regarding what makes a great drummer and what sort of fails the instrument? I think I was funny. I was like listening to a song on the radio the other day and it had like this like super fat snare drum, like warm, the dude's hitting right in the middle. It's just like, you you know, I feel like, you know, and it's fine. I love that. It's all good, but it's just like such like a, you're in the studio. Like this is the, those dead sounds that, um, I don't know if I'm explaining this properly, but I just think that it's not all about sounding perfect. I think it's sounding fucked up and making it your own or, you know, and finding your tone and your sound. And, you know, the biggest, you know, credit that you can pay to, towards a musician is like, hey, that's, uh, you know, that's Luke on drums. That's Sammy on drums. Like, I just know just by listening to it, you know, or that's so-and-so playing guitar or bass and just to have your own sound. So, yeah, just to, just to find your voice, I guess, and make it your own and, um, but I like, yeah, people who are just kind of out the box. I mean, there's so many fucking everything, drummers, photographers, whatever, like just make it your own, find your own thing. And, and, you know, I like personally, I think what attracted me to punk and hardcore and the same thing with, you know, early hip hop and, and reggae and like rebel music. And like, I like when it's just fucking dancing right on the edge of, you know, fire, fucked upness, like to push it full on, even if it's quiet and pretty and beautiful, like just push that shit, you know, like shit that's kind of safe. It just, you know, it generally doesn't like, uh, resonate with me. And I know you, I know you've spent time playing in a reggae band with, you know, multi multicultural membership. I know mm-hmm. you've done a fair amount of, of, or at least some commercial session drumming, things like that. Two things a little bit closer to home, but the two kind of a, a, diehard aging hardcore nerd are still a little bit outside of the box for me that I would like to compare your perceptions on are your work in Civ and your work in rival school. And I'll start with rival schools in as much as in other podcasts. And I could be wrong, but I get the int- the impression that you have a pretty intense amount of artistic pride in that. I mean, I have an artistic pride really in all of it, I guess you could say, but like the time, you know, I guess it comes down to timing with a lot of things in life. Right. So the timing of rival schools was just perfect because you know, I was coming out of like, you know, years of just like pure hardcore, which was awesome. And then, you know, the scene started changing and we were all growing up and people were starting to stretch out musically. And then we started rival schools. Just, it was just refreshing. So it was like the timing of it really, you know, that's why it was like, wow, I'm playing slower tempos. Wow. We have a ballad. Like I've never played a ballad before. You know, I've never like, uh, I'm exploring dynamics, you know, it's like, yeah, just like it was, it was refreshing for sure. And then I'm, you know, I love it. It's, and I'm, you know, proud of that one just because, you know, it's, it's a little different, I guess. So it stands out when I think back at like the stuff that I've done and the ones that are rooted in like friendship, like Civ and Rival Schools, 
are different, but they, to me, when you mention it, like they're both kind of this, they're, they're similar in the sense that they're rooted in like friendship. You know, like we started it just very naturally, both bands, you know, just like, let's do this. This is cool. We're friends. I got an idea. You got an idea. Cool. Let's like, let's, let's hone it. Oh shit. This is good. Let's do more of this. Now we're, now we're banned. Well, so here's the thing to me, they strike me as being very different. And one, you know, I'm very impressed with and very pleased with. And while I would never be rude and, and, you know, crank on the other one, it doesn't necessarily land with me. So I'm sort of curious, particularly since they involve some of the same bodies, yeah. whether the creative process and the writing process were different between the two. To me, and this could be ignorant, Civ seems to pull from much more obvious influences and Rival School seems more exploratory. Yeah, for sure. No, no doubt about it. And it also goes back to like the time uh, a little bit too. I mean, 94, 95, you know, like, you know, yeah, I mean, Grill Biscuits had broken up and basically Walter wanted to do something that was like Siv, Siv's such a great front man. Let's, let's do something. He shouldn't be, you know, doing nothing. Let's, let's try and, and, and get him, get him motivated for this project. So that was kind of it. And it was, and sure the climate at the time was like, you know, the offspring and the Green Day and Green Day were huge. And, but we weren't really doing it for that. I think we were doing it initially to do something with Siv and to do, and just cause we loved like we we're kind of going for, I guess, more like a jam type idea. And the the initial idea was only to do singles, like very British, like, you know, just let's drop singles, let's drop EPs and singles and singles and singles and just kind of have fun with that and make them like little art projects. And, you know, just because of the time, because the Offspring, Green Day and all these major labels were like, we need a punk band. Like we just, it happened very quickly where we mm-hmm. got signed to Atlantic and we didn't, that was not the intent, but so musically, it's just, you know, that's where we were consciously pulling from like a very specific thing. You know, it wasn't right. like, let's totally knew that no one's ever heard of. It was like, we're let's pull from this shit that we love that we came from. That's not necessarily all just like fast, fast, fast mosh part. Some of it, you know, that, I mean, like set your goals, the song or choices made, or some of those songs were, yeah, we're a little adventurous, you know, or a little different for us at the time. Whereas rival schools, you know, five years, six years later was like, let's fucking let's bug out a little bit more, you know? And I think that sure. that's maybe what you're referring to. And that's kind of, you know, which is also refreshing. Sure. Civ Atlantic, correct? Yeah. Or and, Atlantic, and Atlantic by way of Gitter. Yeah. Gitter. I mean, that, again, like that, you know, I think like that, that just was like, well, hey, let's make a single. Cool. We got this hardcore song. I Brute on one side. Can't wait a minute more on the other side. And this is really fun. Our friend Marco Siega was like, Hey, I want to make a video. We kind of pulled some money together and like, and we made this video and then Gitter was there at the video shoot and he's a friend and he's an A&R guy at Atlantic. And it's just like, you know, one thing led to another and we just got this record deal. And then we like, we had to write a record very quickly. That was sort of, and radio stations started to play Camel Man and more. So there was like this kind of weird problem, I guess you could call it. It was a, high, a good problem to have where they were like, you need to make a record fast because we need to get this record out because radio stations are playing this shit. Single was getting airplay in advance of the existence of the album? Yes. Wow. Like yeah, the that's label, pr- that's, that radio, seems like pressure. The radio, the label had to tell the radio stations to slow down. I mean, or I don't know if they ever did, but that's what they were like alluding to that, you know, it's, you need a record because now you got momentum and what do you, you're not selling anything. So the reason I ask about Gitter, the reason I bring him up, it's a guy both of us have known really since our youth and since his youth. Yeah. That's a good way to be shepherded into that major label situation. I don't know how active his role was, but beyond that, was there, a need to protect yourselves or was there, or is the exaggeration real that labels try to control the release or that they stick their fingers in creatively? I mean, was there, you know, was there a, what's the next single? 
what's the this type of song, what's the that type of song? Or were you kind of able to lock yourselves in a space and just get the thing done? I think our experience was positive because we had a lot of people that came up in the hardcore scene that were now like in these positions where they're working at the publicist that we're using. They're working at the label that we're working with. They're working at the studio. They're they're working on the video. Like So now, like a lot of these kids we came up with are kind of, we're still working with them. They still get it. It wasn't like total foreign people, you know. So we had a, I think we had a really positive experience. I mean, there was lessons learned, sure. Like in retrospect, looking back, you know, was the second single the right choice or did we even have a second single or, or third single? Like we didn't really think like that. So um, I think that, I think we had a positive experience. I mean, there was ups and, you know, peaks and valleys, man. I mean, the second record didn't do so well, but because, uh, because of like, and that was a cool lesson in itself, you know, too, of just like making that record the way we did and, and the second Civ record that is. Um, but we ended up getting that record back. We own it, which was really cool. So, I mean, nice. you've heard night stories, but I think because of our manager knowing the president of the label and the president of the label was a cool dude. And um, he was just like, yeah, like, you know, we're, we, we're not succeeding with this. So therefore it's yours. Take it, which was really cool. Then. It's funny to hear them saying, you know, we're not succeeding with this, but me knowing your background, I'm thinking buses, bigger venue, and support situations for massive bands probably didn't feel like failure. It's just different perspectives. Like it was a huge jump for us because we come from, you know, staying in people's houses and, and vans and playing like a lot of squats. And, and it, you know, so that was like new and exciting for us. But I think for them, you know, it wasn't a, I don't think it was a failure, but I just think they're on a level, you know, we were on the label with Kid Rock, Matchbox 20, Sugar Ray, you know, they're just in a different yeah. world. No, which is fine. And I mean, obviously the music business has changed a lot since then, but there was a time where one Jay-Z pays for 10 sips and that was their model. It was like, let's just sign a bunch of shit and we're going to, one of them's going to pop and going to pay for everybody else. And, and then it's all good. There were A&R people who came and saw 411 who had no commercial success. So, I mean, no commercial viability, no no realistic path to any kind of sales. So I do remember, I do remember the era when they were looking at fucking everything. Yeah. And like, you know, it's interesting just, and it's, I'm cool. I'm totally fine with the whole journey. It's just interesting, you know, looking back at like, that was the thing, you know, to do that at the time. But, um, was that, you know, that's not, it's okay. If 411 didn't get signed to a major because there was, you know what I mean? Like, it's all good. <laughs> like as, it's, as, as cranky and judgmental as we are, it would, ne- we'd have never gotten past the negotiation. Process. Yeah. It's all good. I mean, there's, there's peaks and there's pros and cons to all of it, but you know, back to Gitter and these hardcore relations, which, you know, have kind of are still with all of us to this day, but like he ended up at Roadrunner and then he was working with this band Glassjaw um, and this producer Ross Robinson and they needed a drummer. And so he re- recommended me. So then I started playing Glassjaw and that's all thanks to Gitter. So we have that other like kind of connection and we've had different moments throughout, you know, throughout the years. Um, so it's, it's cool. I love the, you know, the journey and just like, I'm a big fan of like kind of uh, take some chances and also like keep your hook on the water, you know, and just kind of keep trying things. And so, you know, some of them are just weird, but I'm down to try it. I've like, I played on that Limp Bizkit record, which is just bizarre, but like, mm-hmm. I just did it because it was like, fuck it. This sound, this seems fun. You know, like, um, my dad said it to me a lot. Like, I'm like, you know, I live in LA now. It's like, should I move back to New York? He's like, will it be fun? <laughs> you know, and it's like an mm-hmm. interesting way of looking like, will it be fun? Like, yeah, maybe, or maybe not, you know? Um, so, you know, Limp Bizkit, I played on a Patty, I played with Patty Smith once a, a concert mm-hmm. with her or, you know, Civ opened up for Kiss and like, 
you know, you could argue that that's like not cool or I don't know, but I just, I'm okay. Was it Kiss you know, with the makeup? It was Kiss with the makeup. They were well, bad. Then it, was it was cool. <laughs> and it was in Madison Square Garden. So it was sick. But like, I think, and maybe it ties back to like playing drums and, and musicians that I like and this and that. It's just taking chances, you know, and not being afraid to just like kind of see what's behind that door. Well, so your next career or a side career or maybe the bill payer for certain periods in your life has been, for lack of a better word, in marketing, correct? Um, yeah. Like, uh, um, like long story short, as my daughter turned two, we were living in New York and the old friend of mine from New York was like, dude, come to LA. I work at this ad agency and I can get you a job as sort of like our music dude for these brand partnerships that we do. So I was like, that's weird, but it sounds exciting. Health insurance and money and, you know, an actual steady paycheck and all this shit. Um, so we tried it, you know, and I thought we'd be in LA for like a year or two. We ended up, we're here, been here for like 10 years, but that job lasted for like five years. And then, yeah, next thing you know, I've got this like real ad agency experience. And then I went to, you know, through hardcore, an old friend, Jason Peterson, who was from Arizona, he was in windows of change and youth under control. And he's a successful ad person in Chicago. And he got me a job at this other agency called Havas. And I did that for a little bit with him. And then that ended, and I was a little fried on kind of like the corporate agency style thing, but I kind of, you know, I had this new sort of like skill set or whatever. And um, talking to Jordan Revelation, he's like, yeah, I could use some help with just a bunch of shit. And so I started doing, I guess you can call it marketing. I mean, it's really, with Rev, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, they needed a new website. It was like, what? let's tighten up the merch and some signing of some new bands. But a lot of it is storytelling. And that's all. And then trust records is another label where I basically am doing kind of similar stuff with that. And for both, I look at it as, you know, storytelling really, like, how do you, you've got these awesome old legacy bands. How do you kind of tell that story in a way that's like compelling that, you know, it's going to keep the, the old fans that have been there since day one, kind of engaged and interested and like, fuck yeah, I love this shit. And then there's maybe some new fans out there have never heard of it who are going to be like, wow, this is interesting. I'm going to check out Youth Today or Circle Jerks or Seven Seconds or Gorilla Biscuits or No Finance or whatever. So it's, you know, and taking a couple chances, you know, maybe we're maybe we're making a shirt in a weird color. Maybe we're, you know, doing this. Maybe we're like, um, you know, doing a partnership with a, a skate brand that's kind of young or, you know, just like, just really trying to, um, yeah, just kind of like tell those stories in a way. And I think, I'm, you know, I'm, I come at it from a perspective is that I'm, you know, I'm a fan. Like I love this shit. Like I'm a fan of even the bands I'm in. I'm, I listen to them. I listen mm-hmm. to youth today. I listen to judge, you know, I listen to rival schools. Like I'm, I'm a fan of seven seconds. And, um, and if I'm not, if I don't know the band, like aggression, for example, is on, um, trust, like I kind of missed the boat on them, but you know, I'm digging into it and it's fun to learn about it. So, so I have some philosophical questions about trust, but the first part of your answer puts me into a question that might take me a couple seconds to spit out. So bear with me. You land in, in commercial marketing. I know, I know of, you know, partnerships with Walmart, the application of, you know, major label artists to the, to the promotion of certain products and things like that. And this is not really asked from a cynical perspective, but from an, a, a gut level perspective, you end up coming from kids, bedrooms and floors and heavy, heavy exposure to sometimes the nobility of, operations like maximum rock and roll, sometimes their cynicism and also like the discord example and the heavy, heavy DIY mindset. Was there an internal conflict involved in that or because it was not that music being used in that space? Not so much. 
Yeah, the ad agency had this big fucking promotion, which was like funded by like Unilever. So it was like Axe Body Spray and like Suave and all these companies. And it was basically like filming and interviewing really big artists that had records coming out that were priorities at Walmart. So we would like film and interview, you know, like Shawn Mendes or Kendrick Lamar or like Adele or Katy Perry. And there was like a Latin one with like Prince Royce. And like, there was like an up and coming one where we had like Ed Sheeran when he was, you know, emerging and all this shit. So like conflict, like Walmart sucks for sure. You know, like, yes, like there's that kind of element to like, this is bizarre, but I think I kind of, um, you know, like I'm kind of at peace with that, to be honest. It kind of goes back to playing on that Limp Bizkit record or just doing shit. Like I, I know where my cred is at and I know where my heart is at and I don't really need to just like necessarily put up like a bunch of like rules and I can't go there, can't go there, can't do this, not going to do this, no way I got to do that. Like, you know, you could probably argue that there was some fucked up shit. Yeah, you, you know, even whatever with Civ at Atlantic, like what are Atlantic Records politics? Warner, you know, who's their parent company? I have no idea, but like, you know, I'm not going to scrutinize that shit to death. I, I think, um, you know, what I liked about that was that it kind of, um, I was dealing with, what actually what I really liked about that is that like some of these artists working, well, like a lot of the country dudes, like Thomas Rhett and like um, just, you know, Luke Bryan, all these dudes, like I didn't really give a shit about them until I spent the day with them. And I was like, this yeah. fucking dude is cool, man. He's just trying to write songs and like, and he's got something to say. And, um, you know, not all of them were cool, but, you know, Rashawn Mendes was interesting. We filmed him like playing acoustic and his songs were just like cool fucking tunes, man. I thought at least in that version of it, but you know, I liked it. And, um, I also realized that it kind of quickly pulled, like, I was like, shit, I'm not experienced for ad agency. Like who the hell do I think I am? And then I realized, well, wait a second, I've been doing, you know, events experiential my whole life or, you know, branding in a way like the today fist or the, whatever the gorilla biscuits, gorilla, like all this, like it's all, you know, brands for lack of a better word, but it's just like, uh, or, you know, story. Yeah. Storytelling. So anyway, I don't know if, but to answer your question, no, I was at, I'm cool with it. Like I love discord and Ian, I love maximum rock and roll and all those cats, but it's like teach his own. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay with taking some getting out of my comfort zone a little bit. Well, my take on that is twofold. One, you know, we've known each other for years, but in prepping for this interview, right? Yeah. Uh, I came to the conclusion while, while, while listening to you, because we don't, you know, spend time together. I think we haven't seen each other in person uh, since Pappy and Harriet's, you know, more than mm-hmm. a year ago, but you have mastered people are people on a fall, far higher level than I have. You, you've been able to divorce yourself from sort of angry, paranoid, youthful parent you know like self-protectiveness and i'm sure that serves you you seem like a gifted networker uh the other thing is that artistic exploration i think probably serves you in that field i've always been fascinated with marketing and i agree with you that branding is central to hardcore it it is it is an unacknowledged cornerstone or skill set that a lot of the movers movers and shakers in that come from you know, the crass logo is as recognizable as any, as any corporate logo to me. Same yep. with the bad religion logo. Same with, you know, there is a black flag typeface. There's no two ways, two ways about it. And the whole vibe of a lot of bands developing some uniformity in their presentation and thus becoming visually identifiable as a thing. So I, I wanted to talk to you about marketing and that potential conflict, but I kind of suspected you would make that acknowledgement that you're under, that you're gift at it probably comes largely from hardcore. So. Agreed. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, 
you know, I just, I see it a lot. Like I run a lot of the revelation socials and the trust socials. And, you know, I see people like kind of uh, just like get tensed up when something is a little different or like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I like to kind of push them in a comfortable way or my, and myself really. But it goes back to like, even with Siv, when I remember talking to some kid who was just like, I like the song. It was, it was European. It's like, I like the song, Brute, but the other song is such a sellout song. And it's like, okay, you know, like, and you know, so I've had this pushback, you know, and I'm sure a lot of, you know, musicians have like where anytime you step out or whatever, you know, you know, from choice making that second record or Dagnasty making, you know, their, their, their evolution or bold, you know, the bolts, you know, from bold to the bold seven inch or, you know, seven seconds, like some of their, you know, they switched it up, new wind or, you know, what the soul force or whatever. So it's kind of like a similar thinking. It's like, I'm going to fucking take this left turn. I might take this right turn. I'm going to take this other left turn and, you know, get on board if you want. You don't have to. It's okay. You don't have to buy the record. You know, you don't have to buy the shirt. You don't have to like whatever, like, but this is where I'm going. So there are things that are identifiable to me or that I think are identifiable to me. Places where I can see your handprint in the work you do with Rev and in the you know, the things that you get involved in at trust. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about them just because I have my own very pronounced idea of how you're supposed to do things when you're sort of curating the past. Right. So promoting newer material on Rev, I don't pretend to know anything about it or about how to reach that generation. Right. And promoting the older stuff on Rev, it's not particularly complicated either, except that it's weird for me that there are green, no for an answer shirts out in the world Uh with trust. I've discussed this with Joe before, but it's a head scratcher to me that there's this exploration of how to make this music that's more than 40 years old. And that I think an archival archivist label doing, you know, like coffee table quality re-releases. I think it's a thing of beauty, but that any part of the mission is making it relevant to people who are decades and decades younger. It, It seems like folly to me, or it at least seems weird to me. And I won't ask you to justify it, but I'm curious, how's it going? I think it's going well. I mean, I think trust is a young label. So it's only been around for like, you know, what, two years or something. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's like basically, you know, buying or partnering with like, you know, bands and records or labels and putting out records that might not be pressed or not be, not be streaming and just trying to kind of re put them out into the wild, you know, re-release them and, and tell that story and stuff. So, so we've been kind of tweaking the model as originally that was kind of it. And, you know, I think originally like the kind of aesthetic of it was just like old hardcore flyers, like very black and white old art. And, as a friend, I kind of said to them, I was like, look, like, there's, where's the color? You know what I mean? There's so much cool shit. Like, look that, back. That's, you know, that's where you and I differ. Yeah. <laughs> well, but just like, look at what the circle jerks used to do. Like, look at group sex. Like, look at Wild in the Streets. Like, look at these old flyers. Like, just Google, like, whatever. Youth Brigade in the beginning. Old. It's like, there's a lot of, I mean, not like wacky colors, but like, there's a lot of other shit more than just like old, mm-hmm. just, you know, yeah, other than just old black and white flyers. So I kind of wanted to just, you know, delve into that. And then, of course, it's like, yeah, there's, wow, what what happened at that show? Or, well, let's tell that story. Or, like, what, you know, how did they record that record? Or why, you know, who's that screaming on the back of, you know, or, like, the end of 99 Red Balloons? It's like, Troy's like, we like that. Like, what is that? I want, how'd that come about? I want to know. I just want to know, like, what all these things happen. So so how's it going? I think that, I think it's going pretty well. But I think well, we're I, also... I, I mean we're demographically. Picking the model as far as, like, so one thing was, like, we're... I was thinking about HR and about his solo reggae shit, which I just loved. And I was talking to another friend of ours. He loved it too. And we're like, fuck, it's so cool. And it's like, everyone does the bad brains, you know, which is great. Love the bad brains. But I just feel like a lot of people have done it and are doing it and they do it and it's great. But no one really does HR solo shit. So let's do an HR solo shirt. I want one. 
you know, like, and then, so we ended up reaching out and his team was really cool. And we ended up doing a few shirts and then he had like an unreleased song, which we did. And then it was like, cool. Like, and then, you know, part of it is just having fun with it. I kind of, it's like, what I say this to Jordan, sometimes a revelation. It's like, what would Devo do? You know, what would Ray Capo do? Like revelation started with a sense of humor. Like there was a, you know, a whole, like we'll trade uh, GI Joe's for your records. Like there was like a sense of humor to it. And I don't want to lose that, you know, like Ray Capo, if he was in charge would be making fucking 3d glasses and like, you know, anything weird, he would just be down. And I, I and so I like to kind of keep that approach. Cause I think they're, you know, that it's not in all of punk and hardcore, but in some of it. So with trust, it's similar of like, let's do a hotline. So we have this like trust hotline, you know, we had Keith Morris saying like, you've reached the trust hotline, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we had HR do one. And so it's kind of like having fun with it, you know, and um, hoping it's people will pick up on it. And I think some of that's working. And then, yeah, tweaking the model. Like, so, you know, we, we don't have an HR record. They're not, we, we can't, like, it's not for sale or whatever the politics of it are, but we were able to do this t-shirt, you know? And so maybe we can expand into that. Like, you know, how come there's not an awesome, uh, you know, what t-shirt do you wish you had? Do you wish you had a fucking, you know, like a fucking black and red style Luck 13? No. hoodie then let's no. make it resurrecting like, resurrecting the ssd shirts the original ssd shirts is one of the best mo merch moves i see on the yeah so it's just shit that like fuck i want one or why does that exist or why isn't that like yeah so it's um to answer your question how's it going i think it's going well and i think that the model it's a chat it's a fun challenge of like how do you get newer heads into it like when i was 12 and 13 i just was like you know, I gravitated towards old, you know, Clash and the Sex Pistols and, you know, bands that were older or broken up or whatever, but it's not always a given. So um, part of it is just put it out there and see who's, you know, just do a good job on the booklets, do a good job on the reissues and, and see and get it in stores and, and just make sure it's available on all platforms and make sure that it's, a, you know, there's an ad or, or an image on all streaming platforms. So just put it just simple job of just fucking putting it out there. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is like, well, maybe there's something clever, like maybe one of these new you know, like gel or like one of these newer bands like gives a shit and wants to like, I don't know, cover a song or like mm -hmm. do some kind of like, you know, we had a, like, so Cat Moss from the band Scal and Keith Morris talking. And that was interesting because they're like, uh, what, 50, you know, like, um, I don't know, 30 years apart or something like that. And so just, but they're, you know, the connection is that they're both into fucking punk and music and they came up in it or, you know, she's coming up in it and he came up in it and like, so that's, you know, that's fun. And, and that's probably going to get, you know, got some, some additional eyes on it. And, you know, if one person discovers Youth Brigade because of that, then job well done. The last thing I want to talk about today is something that's near and dear to my heart. And that's a very specific band and a band you've done a shit ton of work with this year. And that would be your stepping into seven seconds. And yes. it is very long. And what struck me as kind of an arduous heavy lift of a tour which was, you know, this negative approach, seven seconds, circle jerk, seemingly endless road work. Uh, how did that come about and how was it? Um, I think it kind of came, you know, I've met those guys throughout the years and it's always been good times, but, you know, not like a, a lot of hanging, but just always uh, <clears throat> I think like Kevin might have sang Young Till I Die with Siv and like a Warp Tour years ago or, you know, definitely have known the, the guys throughout the years, but um I guess the trust records thing like started where I now, you know, helping out with things with trust and we rolled out the crew and I'm like kind of, you know, getting into that, that mindset. And, um, and they had this tour, you know, that, uh, Keith had asked seven seconds to come out on the circle jerks tour and 
you know, I think Kevin kind of weighed a lot of different things and came to peace with it and agreed to do it. But one of the challenges was that Troy just, I think, was kind of retiring, like physically just was not in a place where he, you know, could do it. So they like, were like, shit, and the drummer and I've been Joe Nelson probably planted that seed. And he called me up one night and I was like, all right, let me hit you in the morning. And I just sort of thought about it. I was like, fuck, man, like circle jerk, seven seconds, negative approach. I'm playing drums for seven seconds. I got to do it. Like I got, like, I just got to do it. I'm in. Mm -hmm. So simple as that, you know, and I just like made a playlist and I started rehearsing on my own and I went up to Sacramento once and jammed with Bobby and Kevin. And then I went up another weekend and Steve came and we all jammed and we were good. I mean, I really did my homework and I, I wanted to approach it just like kind of as close to the records as possible, you know, because I think, and I think I had a cool just perspective because, you know, when you're in a band, you don't realize like, fuck, we're playing these songs a lot faster, you know, or we're playing or we added these like extensions or whatever. I mean, if you're in a band for years and years and years, it just starts to deviate naturally from where the record was. And my approach was like, let's get back to the the record and let's play. I suggested a few songs that maybe they don't normally play, like, I don't know, Clench Fist, Black Eyes, or, you know, a few songs where I was like, we got to play it. This is a great fucking song. You know, to me as a fan, again, coming out as a fan and, you know, and I'd also had a lot of experience with my bands like Judge and Youth Today and Shelter of kind of like, you know, we're older and we're, when we make, when we, I know what it kind of takes to just keep, keep the train on the tracks, you know, a little right. bit. I try, I mean, I don't totally know, but like, so I think I have this nice, um, you know, like I brought in like an interesting energy or perspective to it, but, but it was great, you know, played. Yeah. Like our first show, I think was in Salt Lake city or something on that tour. And then, you know, we got COVID and Keith got COVID and the tour got rescheduled. So it felt like that tour, I think originally it was five weeks straight, but it ended up just getting <clears throat> elongated, which, it was really nice. It was fun to just go home and, and kind of regroup and then go back out and then go home again and then go back out. And, you know, the hopefully we could do do more shows. And we talked about like wanting to do, yeah, just different, you know, they've got such a deep catalog. So like it's maybe there's a, you know, a night of new wins, so forth, ourselves era stuff. And then maybe there's a night of more like earlier stuff. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe there's new shit. Like I'm, I, you know, I kind of follow their lead with them. It's, it's ultimately their call, but I, I'm, I'm into it. You know, I love that band. So oh, I like to, I like hearing that. Yeah. 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 To me, they are a one of a kind thing. And I went into the show at the Palladium, which not to be hypocritical, I've played there, but I went into seeing seven seconds at the Palladium having, you know, you know, I look at shows like the Vex, you know, or even, even just Fenders and their whole thing to me seemed to be like intimacy, but now nah, that Kevin second, seven seconds vibe filled that whole goddamn enormous room it was impressive yeah and you know just to bring it back to trust and marketing and stuff we were talking about earlier like one of the things we did was a conversation with kevin and um shepherd ferry mm -hmm. and that was like very you know it's an example of something that was like very natural it made a lot of sense because shepherd's a hardcore kid and grew up on seven seconds and as he says in like the interview like he would try and draw the logo himself and he had a notebook and he wrote on his sneakers and then you know kevin was talking about how the logos came about and you know, so it kind of checked all these boxes where if you're a fan, you're getting all this information that you're interested in, you know, and I think, but then you also have Shepard's audience, man, which is big. And now mm -hmm. that's getting some new eyes on seven seconds for people that might have never heard of it, which ultimately, you know, is the goal of, of just keeping it going and, and um, celebrating great special music, you know? Well, listen, Sam, everything that we discussed before the interview, we have checked all those boxes and you have given great content on them. So awesome. thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. This was a good time. Lovely yeah. uh, way to start the day.
All right, cool. I think I will actually be seeing you this Thursday. Are you going to be at that trust party? I'm going to be at the trust party Thursday. I'm going to be at Gorilla Biscuits tonight. Hardcore never stops. Let's keep it going. <laughs> Come out. Dude. Come out tonight. Mosh it up with us. I actually, I, I'm corporate stooge tonight. I actually have a work, I have a work obligation. Okay. Damn right. respect. Respect. Okay. Well, listen, everybody. Episode 53 with Sam Siegler. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.